again in circles. Think I heard it all. This is Michael Easley in context. We need something more. Something more. Something more. What you said, I can't hear cause you ain't talking about Follow Michael on Twitter at Dr. Easley. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. So what in the world does Lecrae have to do, number one, with Michael Easley, and number two, with our broadcast today? Well, we are going to be talking with Nancy Piercy. Nancy is the editor-in-large of the Piercy Report. She is a scholar-in-residence and professor at the Houston Baptist University, also the director of Francis Schaeffer Center for Worldview and Culture. Her bio goes on and on and on. Of most interest for us today are her two books, Total Truth and Saving Leonardo. We're glad to have Nancy with us today on the broadcast. Nancy, tell me, how does an agnostic in your journey, A, I'm presuming you were always an intellectual geek even in high school, right? <laughs> I don't think people would have called me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this wasn't I don't, nascent. I don't come across that way. <laughs> this wasn't nascent. You're brilliant. So it had to come up somewhere in your high school, college years, and you determined you were agnostic. What, what did that mean to you? By the way, I had long blonde hair. And people were always asking me if I was a cheerleader. Huh. <laughs> so I didn't come across as a geeky person. <laughs> you broke the mold. Okay. But I was raised in the Lutheran church. And I, about midway through high school, I started having a lot of questions, partly because I was in New Mexico and it was a very, very secular state. And going to public high school, I started wondering how it was that we as Christians could claim that we were right. But I found out what should be a fairly fundamental, basic question, how do we know this is true? I couldn't find any adults in my life who could answer that. I, I had a chance to speak to a Christian who was a university professor. I said, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. And I thought, that's kind of pragmatic. Yeah. You know, it's, not, it's not working for me anymore. Um, I even had a, uh, had a chance to talk to a seminary dean um, of a Lutheran seminary. And his response was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. And I thought, well, why don't you have answers to my doubts? <laughs> and he treated it like it was a, a psychological stage. And so when I could not get answers to just the very simple question, how do we know this is true? I decided that the most intellectually honest thing, and that is how I thought of it, it's a matter of intellectual integrity, that if you don't have good reasons for something, how can you really say you hold it? How can you say you believe it? Whether it's Christianity or anything else, you have to have good reasons for it. And so I made a decision about midway through high school to reject my religious upbringing and try to look at it objectively, if I could, besides all of the other offerings there, uh, other, other religions, other philosophies. And I literally started going to the library at the high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf. That's why I started wow. getting a little geeky. <laughs> wow. But the reason was, I, if I couldn't find any adults to talk about this with me, I thought, well, maybe, this, maybe philosophy is where they ask questions like, what is truth? Were you always a reader? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, that, that I was. But it's interesting because this wasn't driven by some kind of intellectual search or academic interest. It was really driven by, I want to know what truth is. And having given up my childhood faith, it, I knew what I was missing. It's possible that some pagans, you know, the, the stereotype of the happy pagan that doesn't know what they're missing. I wasn't that way. I knew what I was missing. I knew that if there was no God, then there really was no purpose to life. We were just, you know, kicked up by chance on a rock flying through space. 
And if there was no God, what was our future destiny? You know, when you die, you rot. And what is the meaning to anything you've accomplished? I knew that if there was no God, there was no basis for ethics. And how do you really know that the choices that you make day by day have any validity, any, any larger meaning to them? So I was wrestling with those questions, <laughs> trying to get my friends to talk to me. And I'd, I'd corner them and say, what do you think is the meaning of life? And of course, most kids at that age aren't, aren't thinking much past the, uh, the party the right. next weekend. The game, the prom, the boys, the girls, right? Mm. <laughs> right. So that's how I ended up starting to read philosophy. It's really out of a personal quest to mm. find truth. And so it was a couple of years later when I was going to school in Germany. We had lived overseas when I was young, and so I wanted to go back. And I was in Germany when I, through a series of, of accidents, <laughs> providential ones, uh, I ended up at Labrie, the ministry of Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland. And that was the first time I had ever heard Christians who could engage with the questions of the secular intellectual world who knew what, the, what questions the philosophers were asking. asking. They, could have, they could even help me phrase the questions better. That was really right. impressive. Right. For example, I was arguing that there was no... I was the one and my friends back home in high school arguing that there was no such thing as right or wrong and that we couldn't say anyone was, um, any choices were better than others. Well, I didn't know that was called relativism. I didn't know where that came from. So they would, that, that was one of the things that was really deeply impressive to me is that they actually could help coach me on where, where my ideas had come from. Logically, where did they originate? What ism do they come from? And how could I evaluate them? How could I test ideas? In fact, it was so impressive that, that at first I left. <laughs> I didn't stay wow. at Libri. I left after only a month because it was so attractive to me to find Christians who could actually talk about intellectual and cultural questions. It was so attractive that I thought I might be drawn in for emotional reasons, and I didn't want to do that. I want, if I was going to go back to Christianity, which I did not want to do, it would have to be out of genuine conviction. Wow. I went back to the States, but by then I had discovered apologetics. I had not known there was such a thing as apologetics. And uh, through my own reading, I eventually became convinced that it was true. And then I started looking around and saying, well, where do I find other Christians? And I thought, well, I used to know some at Labrie. <laughs> so I went back to Labrie a second time and stayed for four and a half months. And that's where I really got grounded in understanding uh, what Christianity meant and uh, the, the worldview approach to Christianity that Schaefer was so good at propounding. He was brilliant. One of my professors at seminary said, we think we think, but we don't think. And <laughs> when I read through Total Truth and Saving Leonardo, Lancey, one of my frustrations is a, even as a pastor, uh, we're talking to a culture, A, they don't read, and B, they really don't think beyond what's the uh, the current issue of the day. I mean, uh, the producer and I were just talking about some of the palaver on the news right now that's top news. As you've diagnosed this, give us some encouragement, give us some diagnosis and give us some encouragement on what's going on in our culture that we don't think critically about, especially issues of God, but even beyond moral relativism, right and wrong, secularism, so forth and so on. Well, let me say something encouraging, um, and that is I think people are still hungry for a deeper understanding of, of Christianity. They're hungry for uh, something that's intellectually challenging and that's, you know, a complete worldview. And this came home to me recently when I found out, do you know the Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae? I know of him. I'm not the one to ask. Right. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> well, I didn't know about him either. I had no idea who this was. I started getting calls from friends telling me, did you know that Lecrae is promoting your book, Total Truth, and that he's quoting it at conference talks and so on? Uh, and I, like you, I had to first find out who he was. And it, uh, it turns out that Lecrae grew up in Los Angeles without a father, largely raised by his grandmother. Um, looking for significance, he he filled his life with drugs and alcohol and gang activity. In fact, he was so wild that his friends named, nicknamed him Crazy Cray. Wow. So he was the poster child for all the stereotypes of urban subculture. But eventually Christians reached out to him, and he became a, a, a Christian. And as you, you may know, he's now sold hundreds of thousands of records. Uh, he's won multiple Dove Awards, a Grammy Award. But what's fascinating is in this conference talk, the first time I heard that he was uh, talking about Total Truth, my book, he said the turning point for him was not just when he converted to Christianity. The turning point came when he understood, and, and here's a direct quote from that talk. He said, when I understood that Christianity is not just religious truth, it's total truth. Hmm. When he realized that Christians are called to roll up their sleeves and work out the implications of a biblical worldview for science, for scholarship, for art and music, of course, especially for Lecrae, being a musician, uh, for justice, for politics, and all the rest of life. So what really impressed me about this was that this is not somebody who you would think was intellectually oriented. Right. This was not someone you would think uh, was the typical person who would be interested in Christian worldview and apologetics. And yet he was hungry for that message. He was hungry for the message of, what does it mean to take my Christianity outside of just the narrow religious world, you know, church and Bible study, and you know, which is good, which is important. But how do I take it out into the world of my profession and into, into um, the public realm? And it was fascinating that somebody like Lecrae would be hungry and looking for that broader understanding mm-hmm. of Christianity. And I started getting Facebook friend requests from all these Christian hip-hop artists <laughs> saying, Look, Lecrae told me to read your book. I love it. So I, I have a fun little group now of, of Christian hip-hop artists among my Facebook friends. You never know how you're going to be used, right? <laughs> it's opened a whole new group of people that I talk to, and it is fascinating. Again, just because we tend to think, in your typical church, I get this all the time from my readers. They say, how do I get my pastor interested in this? How do I get my church interested in this? Because they tend to think worldview and apologetics is for a certain a certain type of person. To use the word we, that you used earlier, some kind of geeky, intellectual person. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Once people like Lecrae understand it, they find out that that's exactly what they were looking for. Lecrae's doing a documentary on the, what he's called the Unashamed Movement, Unashamed. And the, the filmmaker came down to interview me. And, he, and again, here's a black filmmaker from a very non, non-middle-class <laughs> background and after interviewing me for a couple hours, he's turned off the camera and said, this is what we're looking for. This worldview message is what we are looking for. So we need to be encouraged to realize people aren't getting it in your typical church, but they really do want to understand how to live for God in every area of life and taking it outside of the church and into their lives. When we talk about worldviews, of course, that's a, a massive uh, category of, of of different ways of looking at things. When we look at our current culture, 
with um, the Islamic influence, terrorism that we're afraid of. We're talking about ISIS and ISIL right now, unlike any time before in our history. Uh, the moral relativism of religion, much less Christianity in our culture. So, so we've got this, you know, almost not to be condescending, but a seventh grade view of what truth is, what truth isn't. Um, help, help us understand where we start. And I'm with you on apologetics. I think we've, we've got to help our folks understand why they believe what they believe, which is one of my hobby horses. But how do you start, Nancy? Because let's say there are some that are hungry, but many of them are not. And what moves me the most is the fact that we're losing our kids. I think for many people, the fact that um, so many of our young people are leaving the faith, leaving the church, leaving their Christian background. If we're not succeeding in communicating Christianity effectively to our own children, we're certainly not going to be able to do, communicate effectively to the wider culture. And I, I run into it so often. Most recently, um, I met a woman who's a wonderfully Christian family, wonderful Christian home and church, but her son went off to state college to study psychology. As you know, ever since Freud, most psychological theories have been mm-hmm. not just secular, but hostile to Christianity. Mm-hmm. They treat religion as a, as a symptom of neurosis. It's an infantile regression. You, know, you just can't grow, grow up, so you project a, a, an imaginary father figure into the sky, and so on. And this young man is completely unprepared for those kind of hostile theories. He did not know how to critically evaluate them. He did not know how to offer a Christian alternative. That's what we mean by Christian worldviews, that it does have something to say to every field, including psychology. Within a semester, he had completely abandoned his faith. Mm. Those are the kind of stories that drive me and motivate me and motivate a lot of parents, at least, uh, when they realize that that the culture has become increasingly secular. Our children are facing much tougher challenges than we ever did. And if we're not preparing them, they're not going to survive. I can't, personally, I can't imagine setting my kid off to study psychology without having sat down with them ahead of time and said, okay, what are the major theories you're going to encounter in your classroom? And let's talk about how you can critically evaluate them. We have to stop being so naive and recognize that young people cannot go out into the, the wider public arena these days without being better equipped. Your book, Total Truth, of course, is a great work, but I love what you do in Saving Leonardo because, for my language, you're putting the cookies on a little lower shelf for more of a consumer. At least that's why I'm reading it. One of the things that struck me was the way you defined postmodernism with this postmodern and modernity metric, subjective and objective truth. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, I'm so glad you like Saving Leonardo. I love it. I love it, too. I love it because it, it shows how ideas permeate a culture through art and humanities, through the mu- movies we watch, the music we listen to. This is how most people pick up their ideas about life. They don't say, oh, I need a philosophy of life, and then go sign up at the local university for a philosophy course. And so it's imperative for Christians to know how to recognize worldviews when they come to us, not in words, where they're easier to recognize, but what about when worldviews are communicated through the storyline, the plotline, the characterization, the composition of an image? The arts are a language that we have a responsibility to learn how to interpret, just like any other language. I'm, we're called to be missionaries, and this is one of the languages that we need to learn how to, to read. So that's my goal in Saving Leonardo's to teach people how to recognize worldviews in the arts. You, you write... Um 
in Saving Leonardo, what is crucial for Christians to address is the crack up of truth itself. Before they can make a case for Christianity as true, they first have to clarify what they mean by truth. And it's that's the theme, obviously, through both of your books. Give us the primer on how we clarify what is true. I'm glad you asked that because that this is something that was central to my own search when I was an agnostic. I went to Libri and started hearing apologetics for the first time. And I had gone so far, as an agnostic, I had gone so far into relativism and skepticism that I no longer had a sense of there being any real truth. And so at Libri, when I first started encountering Christianity, the staff at Libri, you know, Francis Schaeffer and the people he had trained, uh, first had to talk through whether there was even such a thing as truth before I could consider whether Christianity was that truth. And so much of Francis Schaeffer's own writings were trying to get Christians to understand that. The concept of truth has shifted. So when you say Christianity is true, people no longer even know what you're saying. And that was personally relevant for me as well. I had to first understand and be persuaded that there was such a thing as an objective, transcendent, universal, timeless truth, as opposed to the postmodern view of truth, before I could consider whether Christianity filled the bill as mm-hmm. being that mm-hmm. truth. And so that's what I'm getting at when I say in, in Saving Leonardo, we, we almost have to go through, a, a, sometimes people call it pre-evangelism. You know, before you can give the gospel, you have to sometimes unpack a lot of the misconceptions people have. And what, the key one today is that view of truth. People think when you talk about religion, you're talking about personal experience, you're talking about personal preference, you're talking about what works for me, what, what makes me feel good, and they no longer even understand that you're talking about truth in the older sense of something objectively there. So it, it takes a while of trans, translating into their language before they even understand the claim that Christianity is making. Mm-hmm. You give a great example of that in the book, Saving Leonardo. If we're going to talk about science, there's no debating it. But the moment we interject faith or religion, it's all suspect. Yeah, one way to think of that is we're always told, don't impose your religion on me. Mm-hmm. But nobody ever says, don't impose your facts on me. <laughs> science is about facts. Science is about truth. That's objective. So we're all expected to accept whatever the pronouncements of science are. No matter what we believe religiously or theologically, we're expected to all accept science. But then when you jump over into the realm of spiritual or religious truth, then suddenly that's when you hear people say, what can be true for you but not for me? All subjective. I remember in college, science being taught as a theory. And a number of the professors I had said, we we know certain facts about science, but much of science is, you know, we have to be, has to be reproducible, has to be a fact, so forth and so on. Now that's been amalgamated into, I mean, God help you if you challenge the climate change people. You're an idiot if you don't believe that science knows for sure these are facts. Yes, you're right. I think I, I think in the past, people were more likely to fulfill the, the ideal image of science is that it is always tentative. And when, when secular people want to discredit Christianity, they'll say, you have blind faith, but we're open to constantly changing our beliefs because of science. But in fact, you're right. It's been so many, uh, there's been so much politicization of scientific issues that now science is taught as easily as dogmatically, if not more so, mm-hmm. than any other realm. Give us some help. How, how do we go forward? I mean, you've done a great diagnostic in Total Truth and Saving Leonardo, but h- how do we go forward as, as parents, 
as educators and perhaps uh, as a 20-something teenage mind? How do we get them started? Well, sometimes when I'm speaking to evangelical audiences, I put it this way. There's a Genesis 1 version of Christianity, and there's a Genesis 3 version of Christianity. Genesis 3 starts with the fall, right? And it leads to the typical revivalist message, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. So it tends to redefine Christianity pretty simply in terms of the conversion experience. So what happens then? You become a Christian, you know you're saved, but then what? You just wait until you die and go to heaven? Mm. What is the purpose of being a Christian? Is it just to go to heaven? I was at a church recently where every other sentence virtually in in the pastor's sermon was, so we know we can go to heaven, so we can be confident we're going to heaven, so that we know Jesus loves us enough that he's going to let us go to heaven. And I thought, but what else is there to the Christian life? Mm -hmm. Well, Genesis 1 version starts with creation. And it says, when God created the physical universe, he created the living things, he created the first humans, and then he gave them a job description. He said, "Here's here's why I made you. Here's what I created you for. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And be fruitful and multiply doesn't just mean family, but, you know, historically, the family has been the basis for all the other social institutions, for church and school and industry and, and nation and so on. So it, it really means build up all the social institutions, including the laws and policies that govern them. The second part, uh, have dominion over the earth, means develop the natural resources. So it's plant crops, you know, make clothing, make bridges, um, design computers, take string and, and boxes of wood and make musical instruments. You know, it's just all of the cultural activities. So it, it really means that God, yeah, this is pre-fall. This is before the fall when God tells human beings what they were created for in the first place. And it was to create cultures, to create civilizations. And I think of, you know, the fall, the fall comes next. You know, in sin, we get off the track. And in salvation, God puts us back on the track. But what was the track? What was his original purpose for us? And that's why starting with Genesis 1 and the creation is so crucial, because it tells us that the original purpose was to be creative in creating the, with the raw materials, to be inventive with the raw materials God gave us. And what that means is your work is work that you do for God. And it's not just a religion. It's, you know, worshiping God on Sundays is what I do for God. But the rest of the week, well, what does that have to do with God? Mm-hmm. Well, when you realize that the, um, the, all of your work, all of your work is part of the Genesis, Genesis 1 vision. Theologians call it the cultural mandate, where God's mandate or command is to build cultures. The, the, the cultural mandate lets us know that all of our work is done for God, is done for God's glory and to serve other people. And that brings... Um, you know, uh, the joy and power and beauty of the Christian life and then overflows into everything that we do. Thanks again for your time, Nancy. Okay, blessings. All right. Bye. Prior to Jesus' crucifixion, he stands before the governor, Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own authority or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. 
Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into this world, to testify to truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And Pilate's question hangs in the balance for many of us. We don't know what's true. We don't know what's truth. And in the context of moral relativism, where what's true for you, what's true for me, can somehow be at odds, a biblical view of the world says, no, uh, there can't be two opposite truths that occupy the same space. As you read scripture, as you're challenged by movies, by films, by the culture's view of things, you need to understand why you believe what you believe, and you need to understand in the context, did God speak? Is his word true? Does God's word trump what the world says about these issues? Always bear in mind, we have the world's view and the word of God's view. That's your decision. Will you look at this in the context of Scripture, in the context of Christ speaking to you and me? This is Michael Easley in Context.